0: Maui ransomware details emerge, Greece spies on journalists, more deepfake concerns come out, and threat actors are selling some interestingly malicious services on the open web. I'm Calvin Bryant, and this is your Thursday, 11 August edition of Defending the Edge. So a report came out this past week that the Greek intelligence service used surveillance malware to spy on a journalist. This is according to two sources in contact with Reuters. The timing of this is not at all surprising. Just last week, we discussed the commercial-grade spyware Pegasus and its counterpart Phantom. These are produced by the Israeli-based NSO group. We also talked about the Canadian Royal Mounted Police using malware to infiltrate phones. A journalist being spied on or tempted to be spied on with malware is certainly chillingly shocking, although it's not a novel occurrence. And that I have to give that qualifier is also in and of itself rather shocking. The Reuters report comes after Nikos Androlakis, the leader of the socialist opposition uh, PASOK party, made a public claim that Greek authorities have attempted to install surveillance software of some form onto his phone. A committee was called to review the actions of the intelligence agency, in which, during the hearing, uh, Panagiotis Kantolian, the chief for the Greek intelligence service, told the Greek parliament that his service had spied on a man named uh, Thanasis Kukakis. Koukakis. Uh, he's a financial journalist who is employed by CNN Greece. Although, interestingly, that uh, while the committee was not public, two lawmakers present at the hearing reported to Reuters that, uh, quote, he admitted the surveillance. Absolutely. Now, in contradiction of the lawmakers, the government spokesperson, uh, Giannis, I think it's uh, Okanalmo, uh, he told Reuters that the Greek authorities do not use spyware uh, that was alleged to have been used in this incident. So two lawmakers saying that it did happen, and then the official government spokesperson saying that no malware, no spyware at all is being used. So where does this leave us? Well, the United States and the European Union are still reviewing and lobbying for various restrictions on commercial spyware, there's no telling when, how, if, or to what extent any change is going to occur. We did report last week that the U.S. has actively cracked down on the use of commercial-grade spyware, particularly in that they banned the NSO group and its products. However, my suspicion is this problem is much larger than we anticipate. Now, if I put my tinfoil hat on, and that tinfoil hat is looking less and less like tinfoil and more like a normal baseball cap, it's not hard for me to question how far Western governments are willing to go in the supposed name and scope of their official dictates. I will lead with a disclaimer that this is, of course, my personal opinion. And while I produce the podcast on behalf of Defend Edge, in no way should my opinion on this regarding any official institutions or my theories about their use of spyware or malware or any of their activities be construed as representative of Defend Edge's position. Now, having said that, you may recall the former, and in some characterizations, the disgraced U.S. Director of National Intelligence, James Clapper's response when he was questioned if the NSA illegally collected on thousands and thousands of U.S. citizens, to which Clapper responded rather infamously, quote, not wittingly. Such a response was, at least by my estimation and many others, simply the equivalent of the, quote, I do not recall uh, answer that's famously used to avoid self-incrimination or perjury. A court cannot prove that you do or do not remember something as long as you do not accidentally contradict yourself. Likewise, the NSA's normal duties of collections on individuals who are threats, and these you would assume have appropriate warrants, could accidentally pick up data on innocent Americans—bystanders, essentially— Saying that you do not wittingly collect on Americans means that you did collections on them, but it was collateral. Of course, in that non denial, there's no follow up to ask if such information was exploited. And to circle back, this particular concern and the entire line of questioning around the NSA's activities is why many people were critical of Clapper, despite him having an otherwise stellar career, including being a retired Air Force lieutenant general. But I digress. So, why are what exactly are my ramblings about the NSA and James Clapper taking us? Where where are we going with this? Well, simply to the point: we should be as law-abiding citizens. We should be ever skeptical and on the watch for what our governments, especially in the West, are doing and how much power we grant them. We should be active in monitoring and advocating for the appropriate oversight and accountability. Now, why am I am not at all assuming that illegal surveillance does not happen on American citizens? I would just say that if our government is seemingly turning a blind eye to the predations of communist China's TikTok cyber psyop, uh, and that's, of course, an external global uh, geopolitical adversary, and they're knowingly exploiting us, uh, I would just ask is it a stretch to assume that our authorities are not already exploiting American citizens in some capacity? Now, I would add that in cybersecurity, we assume that breach is inevitable. We assume that a bad actor will at some point target us and come for us. We prepare for that. All of our best practices, our security posture, our open source information sharing, it's all predicated on that premise. Now, we should apply that to our governments as well, the the exact people who we elect. There's no reason we should spend our careers fighting against cyber threats and exploitation while being complacent and accepting the same type of behavior or similar from our own institutions. Now, Let's get to this week's headlines. Our top headline this week is the rise of Dark Utilities C2 as a Service, which is rapidly increasing. C2 as a Service, or Command and Control as a Service, is exactly what you might think it sounds like. It's the ability to command and control various devices, of course, through malware infection of one kind or another, some kind of remote access botnet excuse me, botnet, you name it. It's all hosted as a paid service. Welcome to 2022, where you can swipe your credit card. Well, maybe not literally, at least not yet. And well, you can buy illegal services. Before you ask, no, this is not the dark web. It's good old light side, our daily use web, everything that you're familiar with on a daily basis. So how is this possible? And how is it not being taken down? Well, it's a good question. And we're going to get to that. The Dark Web Utilities, C2 as a service, it was created by a threat actor who's identified only as uh, Implexus. It's a platform that was launched early this year, and it's now surged to some form of popularity. It's amassed over 3,000 users who use it to control their malicious campaigns. Interestingly enough, the service is estimated to have garnered some $30,000 uh, based on these, the user uh, amount of 3,000. The platform enables remote access, command execution. It also allows for the conducting of distributed denial-of-service attacks. As a bonus, you can also do some cryptocurrency mining operations on infected systems. An analysis from Cisco Talos reads, Dark Utilities provides payloads consisting of code that is executed on victim systems, allowing them to be registered with the service and establish a command and control C2 communications channel. The platform currently supports Windows, Linux, and Python-based payloads, allowing adversaries to target multiple architectures without requiring significant development resources. Now, regarding the difficulty in taking this operation down, it's somewhat twofold. First, Dark Utilities uses Discord as its primary client interface, with Discord and Telegram being used for customer support and assistance. Discourse is also the primary; uh, its primary use is for user authentication and linking to a dashboard. Basically, the entire setup process for the client. Second, the payloads for the platform are hosted on the Interplanetary File System or the IPFS, which makes it far more difficult for authorities to both track, take down, or have any kind of moderation over. IPFS is a distributed and peer-to-peer network. It, it's similar in the term of gateways, much like Tor. To uh, Tortu web gateways. It allows a user to access content that's hosted in the file system, but without a client application functioning as a portal or some kind of entry entry barrier. Now, either way, it's very interesting to see this service taking off in the same months of time that Interpol released its concern that nation state malware would be becoming available on the dark web. So we are again, reminded that threat actors continue to be rather clever, if not innovative. All right. Um, next year, we've got some more news on deepfake. Uh, this is a bit of a recap to a previous episode. You may recall us discussing the increase in deepfake technology to impersonate on job res- uh, job resumes. Hackers were themselves, or they were selling services to people uh, for the ability to completely impersonate someone else in a job interview. And they were doing this mostly with the goal of seeking to land remote jobs or infiltrate companies, perhaps both, usually remote job, with the goal of infiltrating. Uh, And the problem, however, goes far beyond the job interview impersonations that we discussed in the previous episode. According to a report by VMware, it published its uh, annual Global Incident Response Threat Report this last week. Quote, cybercriminals are now incorporating deepfakes into their attack methods to evade security controls. This is from Rick McElroy. He's the principal cybersecurity strategist at VMware. He goes on to say, two out of three respondents in our report saw malicious deepfakes used as part of an attack, a 13% increase from last year, with email as the top delivery method. Cybercriminals have evolved beyond using synthetic video and audio simply for influence operations or disinformation campaigns. Their new goal is to use deepfake technology to compromise organizations and to gain access to their environment. So uh, some other interesting statistics that came out of their report. I found that about a quarter of ransomware attacks use double extortion. Uh, Excuse me, three quarters of uh, ransomware attacks use double extortion. And uh, the top methods were blackmail. uh, And this was also using uh, data auction uh, and public shaming. Now, they did say that 63% of double extortion was done through blackmail, with uh, the auctions coming in around 60% of cases. uh, What this basically amounts to. Is uh, You see a bit of overlap in which the blackmail is the threat of an auction, and then the auctioning begins uh, with the uh, the idea that you can pay the ransom to get them to stop auctioning off the data. Interestingly, only 37% was the shaming of companies, uh, probably because uh, they found that the uh, public uh, embarrassment is less effective than actually selling the information that they they took, whether that was client information or proprietary information, that's uh, much more meaningful to the company than just a little bit of PR. Um, I would also say that if somebody's selling the information that they've stolen, there's definitely its own, uh, there's in and of itself has a bit of a PR nightmare. Uh, And also, as mentioned, the uh, top delivery method for the deepfake videos was via email. Now, speaking of ransomware, there was also a report that came out yesterday and that the number of industrial organizations that are being hit by ransomware decreased from 158 to about 125 during the second quarter of 2022. Uh, Some experts are saying that this is the result of Conti shutting down its elite ransomware operation. The report comes courtesy of Dragos, uh, who said that Conti made up a significant number of industrial ransomware hits. With Conti gone, or rather redistributed to other groups or solo operations, the volume of attacks seems to have dipped, if you recall, back when I reported on Conti's disbanding, I said that it would be very interesting to see where these individuals end up, if they splinter into affiliated cells or whatever the case may be. And while it's not definitive, experts have tracked activity that seems to point to a chunk of what the group is doing now. Ex-Conti appears to be working through smaller ransomware operations, and this includes Caracurt, Black Basta, uh, Black Bite, Black Cat, Hive. There's also Hello Kitty or Five Hands and Avos Locker. Now, Dragos' report also said that 33% of ransomware attacks in the second quarter were by Lockbit, 13% by Conti, and uh, around 12% by Black Basta. And it kind of goes down from there. Um, also, interestingly, uh, interesting to note, Black Basta was not identified as being active in quarter one, which means that they may be filling the post-Conti gap or perhaps more likely this was a backup plan and cover for some of the Conti members. We know that Conti leadership was preparing for weeks, if not longer, for their exit strategy. And Black Basta may have been part of that, barring uh, the off chance of a coincidence. Uh, let's see, up next here. Uh, this was an uh, an article I thought was pretty interesting. Bill Tolis over at the Bleeping Computer reporting that there's a new campaign underway in Singapore to harvest payment details, uh, specifically credit card details, and it's being done via classified sites. Um, so we're shifting gears a little bit from ransomware, and we're going back to old reliable phishing. So this is a phishing campaign that's stealing credit card information and user payment information. These scammers are also uh, leveraging some one-time passcodes in order to conduct direct fund transfers from the victim bank. Now the scheme uh, or the platform as it were uh, is dubbed classic scam. It's a scam as a service platform and it's uh, also fully automated I should note so a little bit of uh, a theme for platforms this uh, this week. Uh, What it does is targets individuals who use classified sites for buying and selling items online Now, the campaign was originally identified back in 2020. It looks like it was founded sometime late in 2019, uh, at least some of its foundational pieces. uh, And it's continued to expand. Now, this did uh, already hit the UK and the United States, but Singapore is a new addition to the area of operations, which is indicating that it's growing internationally. So it's uh, a bit of a problem because this is uh, something that many agencies have been trying to uh, clamp down on it. it's just not seeming to work. Uh, so far, it's estimated to have caused around $30 million in damages. So you imagine some, uh, the the volume of attacks, uh, if this is happening on sites like Craigslist or similar type services, Facebook market page, uh, marketplace, rather sites equivalent to that uh, around the world. Now, the platform has around 90 telegram channels that promote or coordinate its operations and it has some uh, roughly 38,000 registered users. And these users get around three quarters of the profits uh, from the stolen amount. So they use this platform, and then the platform gets about a quarter of the uh, kickbacks and whoever is actually doing the exploit gets about three quarters of it. Uh, One of the primary ways this scam is working, which you've probably seen variation of is a buyer who is the scammer, they approach and they express interest in buying a product from you, the seller they send a URL, which is actually a uh, generated phishing site, the seller is asked to put in their payment information, it's either bank information or credit card. Uh, They're doing this to confirm the uh, payment details and their account, uh, basically account validation. And this is in order to uh, prove who they are, so they can receive funds for the payment. So of course, the victim does so and now all of a sudden, their uh, critical information goes right to the hacker. And in some of these cases, Uh, They're also triggering a one-time password for the login, and uh, Classic Scam service intercepts this information uh, when the user puts it in. Of course, that's for the legitimate banking info, and then uh, Classic Scam gets it to actually do the access and grab the funds. And of course, the victim all the while thinks that they have just authorized access for the legitimate transfer of, of, of the transaction for whatever the sale is. Now, classic scams hosting and infrastructure is very well designed. Um, despite some 5,000 malicious endpoints having been blocked, it uh, continues to operate and expand. So now it's uh, now it's in Singapore. Interesting to see uh, where it pops up next. Uh, also, specifically, the detection takedown is being complicated uh, because the endpoints are redirecting to legitimate sites, so it makes it less than obvious, at least right off the bat, um, that it's a malicious or spoofed site. Now, the best counter to this is to understand the payment process and how your classified sales site processes transactions. You should never be asked to provide payment details in order to receive payment. Uh, Also, the information that you would normally uh, give them, such as your bank account, the routing information, this should have been done up front usually when you create the account before it can go live. And uh, also, it's a big red flag when they're asking for your credit card because credit cards are not used to... uh, to to pay you. They're used to charge things. The only time you get a uh, a charge back on your credit card is a refund for a previously uh, completed purchase. All right, uh, last headline, uh, a little bit more on Maui ransomware. We have an update this week and some going on in uh, North Korea. This past week, Maui ransomware was linked to the North Korea-backed advanced persistent threat group known as Anduril. Uh Anderil is a subdivision of Lazarus. Uh, of course, Lazarus being an advanced persistent drug group. You'll recall in previous episodes, we talked about how Lazarus is both a group name, but more correctly, it's an umbrella term for various groups that work in concert for its operations. So Andereal falls under that umbrella, and uh, it's an arm of Lazarus in, in some ways. Mowry ransomware has uh, been actively used, you may recall, in a campaign to exploit healthcare services. You may also recall it's unique in some ways, or at least unusual, uh, in that it does not have a ransom note embedded, and it features a remote command and control execution feature. According to Kaspersky, uh, they found that roughly 10 hours prior to Maui ransomware being deployed on a target environment, the attackers deployed a variant of d which is a well-known remote access Trojan and file dropper. Uh, as well as exploratory malware, which was uh, believed to be developed either by or in concert with Lazarus. Uh, DTRAC allows for in depth collection of file information on the target device. And uh, during an, a forensic investigation, DTRAC preceded Maui, as I said, by about 10 hours. And uh, this is suggesting that DTRAC is used as a scouting tool for Maui. Uh, which then expressly targets specific folders for exploitation, Uh, of course, using that uh, previously mentioned remote command and control execution for the encryption and exploitation. Now, this update on Maori ransomware also comes the same week that a confidential UN report uh, regarding North Korea was seen by Reuters. Uh, Reuters reported that in the uh, leaked report, the UN is alleging that a recent hack of crypto by North Korea netted them hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, We don't yet know if the report specifies uh, or identifies which crypto hack this was, if any of the the assets were recovered, uh, but we do know that there's been some major hacks over the last couple months. Uh, So more to follow on that if the information becomes available. All right, uh, that's going to do it for our headlines. Uh, uh, Next up, we have our weekly cyber threat intelligence spotlight. But first... If you are a current DefendEdge client and want to ensure your cybersecurity posture is meeting our best practices, contact your designated DefendEdge specialist or point of contact today. If you are not a current client, head over to our website at www.defendEdge.com. That's www.defendEdge.com to find out how we can help you defend against the multitude of evolving threats. The cyber threats and bad actors are not waiting, and neither should you. Now, let's get to our weekly spotlight. All right, so this week's Cyber Threat Intelligence Spotlight is swinging us back to Russia. Unsurprising, our updates this week look, once again, on the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Now, in early August, the Ukrainian Cyber Police within the Secret Service of Ukraine, or the SSU, shut down a massive Russian bot farm of around a million bots that was alleged to be spreading disinformation on social networks. The farm operated in order to discredit information from official Ukrainian sources uh, with the goal of destabilizing some social situations as well as brew internal strife. The bot's messaging consisted of Russian propaganda, which led officials to believe that the farm might belong to members of the Russian special services. The SSU's investigation turned up that a Russian political expert, uh, believed to be a group leader in the bot farm, Uh, They claimed that the person was organizing information and subversive activities, which were uh, ordered by one of the domestic political forces. Uh, Russians have conducted Ukrainian disinformation campaigns in the past, and they've invested in Ukraine-based bot farms to target specific areas. In February of 2022, uh, Meta took down several fake Facebook accounts that were promoting similar information. Uh, earlier in March, the SSU announced that uh, it had discovered and shut down somewhere around five bot farms of a similar kind, uh, which operated over 100,000 fake social media accounts. Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky has also been at the epicenter of misinformation campaigns, uh, one of which was employing deepfakes on Facebook and hacking Ukrainian radio stations to spread fake news that the president was in critical condition. Uh, both were believed to be the work of Russian actors. From the start of the war, the SSU has identified and neutralized over 1,200 cyber attacks against the state, as well as uh, other critical entities. They've reported that they've taken down 500 YouTube channels that collectively had around 15 million subscribers. Uh, moreover, the agency reported about 1,500 Telegram channels uh, and bots, and another 1,500 Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok accounts uh, were out there spreading Russian propaganda. So uh, it should be said that the war in Ukraine is likely to have some significant bleed over, uh, especially the longer it's drawn out, and especially here in the United States. The funding of uh, money and weapons by the U.S. to Ukrainians has painted a target on the back of U.S.-based weapon manufacturer Lockheed Martin. They are responsible for building the High Mobility Artillery Rocket System, or HIMARS. Now, this platform is in, uh, some sources in Russia claim that this platform is responsible for changing the balance of the Ukraine-Russia conflict and leading to the death of thousands of, of Russian assets, uh, Russian personnel. Uh, seemingly related to this analysis, Lockheed Martin has received multiple threats, likely Russian in origin. Days after threats against Lockheed Martin, Killmilk, the founder and former leader of Russian-based uh, excuse me, russian hacking group Killnet, stated that cyber warfare will result in casualties. On Sunday, August 7th, Killmilk told the Russian news site uh, Gazeta.ru uh, that he was going to help galvanize countless other hackers who, quote, for one reason or another, support Russia in the new world order. And he also pledged to, quote, be a pioneer if uh, Russian and pro-Ukrainian hackers confront each other to the point where deaths occur um so interesting uh and in- interesting take there interesting escalation from the cyber to the physical domain talking about uh leading uh, this conflict actually leading to deaths uh between hacking groups or ha- members of these groups uh quote uh, he added quote in russia i will become a hero and abroad a criminal uh he it's interesting that uh killmilk he launched uh, killnet on november 1st of 2021 Uh, He also said that he and KillNet will soon launch powerful attacks on European and American enterprises. He then goes on to say that uh, these will lead to, uh, indirectly lead to casualties. He says, I will do my best to make these regions and countries answer for each of our soldiers. Uh, So he's talking about. Any of the lives lost uh, uh, on the Russian front, I guess, uh, he's he's going to try to make sure that there's revenge in the cyber domain. And then, of course, if this spills over and leads to physical casualties, um, so far as the cyber war is concerned, if that leads to uh, uh, physical casualties, he's saying that they're going to make sure the countries answer, answer for that. Now, in July, uh, related statements about a development that allowed Russia to hack into the HIMARS systems were made by uh, Alexei Linikov. He's a Russian military expert. He publicly claimed on July 28th that Russia had come up with a, quote unquote, secret development uh, that allows it to hack into the HIMARS Said, so, quote, the American system has been hacked and our secret development will be deployed in all directions. A good system, I can't name it yet, but it works at much greater distances, instantly fixing the launch site. For the Americans, this was a very unpleasant surprise, end quote. Uh, the ability of Russia to compromise either Lockheed Martin here in the United States or its HiMars system is pretty suspect, uh, although it's not impossible. It's more likely that Russia is trying to control the narrative around the high uncertainty within the war still, uh, especially in the recent weeks when there's reports that Moscow has been on the back foot uh, of the ground war. Now, of course, if the past is any indication of Russia's ability to hack into High Mars or Lockheed, then certainly possible russia has pulled off some pretty impressive hacks in the past uh, however the rapid deployment of the ukrainian war or rather the rapid uh, development of the Ukraine war it might be stretching their capabilities a bit thin according to some ukrainian officials russia may have uh, burned its future digital sabotage campaign uh after it used a pretty impressive skill set uh, back in january on january 14th there was an attack uh that Russia used to implement some new malware that wiped out two different computer agencies uh, or two, two computer systems within government agencies, and uh, took down some other government websites as well. And what these Ukrainian officials are saying is that the, uh, this assault was a huge miscalculation by the Russians. Uh, they're saying that it undermined their potential future digital sabotage campaigns because it exposed that they had this covert access. Um, and, uh, incidentally, this made it easier for Ukraine to recover from attacks once the uh, actual round invasion had began about a month later. Uh, there's an individual named Viktor Zora, who's the deputy head of Ukraine's cybersecurity agency and the State Service for Special Communications uh, and Information Protection. He said, uh, quote, they could kind have of waited for the beginning of the war, and if it had happened, it would have been a disaster, end quote. So. Yeah, he's basically saying that had they waited until there was the actual chaos of war and everything was fully deployed to uh, activate their uh, their infiltration abilities um, and implant that malware, then it could have had a much more compounding effect. And rather, they seem to have shot this off prematurely. So now that it is known, and the cover is blown, uh, there's already active ways in place to attempt to counter it. Um, so the Ukrainian accounts on this, they're they're shedding a little bit of light on why Russia has not overwhelmed uh, Ukraine in cyberspace. Uh, much to what I was just saying is they, they kind of exposed this too soon. Um, however, there's some independent experts that differ on the plausibility of these claims made by Ukraine. Uh, also, the Ukrainian officials didn't do any kind of attribution. Uh, so that that's kind of interesting. Um, they uh, they didn't really point to a specific threat actor or really narrow it down uh, during that attack in January. Um so that does leave some analysts out there questioning if that was truly a Russian attack or what exactly happened. Um, so again, there's, there's two sides to every story here, especially in an armed conflict. Um, uh, additionally, as had said that the Russian hackers had access, uh, on, if they had access on January 14th, uh, to the Kitsoft, which is uh, an IT vendor that had developed websites for the Ukrainian government. Um, uh, he said, quote, it's really fantastic access they've got, and they burned it. Uh, and he added uh, "Added basically that uh, they could have combined everything, but rather uh, he says that they burned all their accesses, and after that they started to achieve some new ones, and they burned those as well. Uh, he goes on to explain that uh, they, they're kind of working off the cuff, uh, as he puts it, uh, and it, it did make it difficult to regain access. Uh, without having time to prepare, and also with the Ukrainians having now been on the defensive. So yeah, basically what I was I was just saying is that now that they've kind of given themselves away, they've lost the initiative there. and the, Their timing just seems to have really been off. Uh, Zora also uh, is quoted saying that the uh, hacks gave us some lessons in terms of how to respond, how to coordinate, uh, so it was a good exercise for us. So never never play your hand too early. Never play it before you're ready to fully capitalize on it. Um And so on that note, Russia burning their cyber access early really highlights the difficulty and the time that's needed for cyber campaigns. Timing can be very crucial. Uh, Russia's pulled off some pretty intricate and debilitating cyber attacks in Ukraine for many years uh, prior to this conflict. Uh, However, the lead-up actions in cyber campaigns have been a combination of refining and testing of cyber weapons and tactics. In this case, that just didn't seem to be the uh, the case. Uh, However, the... uh, campaigns that we're seeing in Ukraine and the rest of the world, it has led to some pretty significant defense improvements that seem to be thwarting some of the -the off-the-cuff, as it were, attacks by Russia. So it looks like they're going to really need to refocus and come up with a more exacting plan, something more detailed, rather than try these one-off attacks now, uh, especially if those attacks are using similar methods, uh, especially intrusion methods that have already been detected and and defeated uh, over the course of this war going on, uh, you know, what, six months now? So I think it's uh, safe to say at this point that this war is uh, certainly not yet ready to draw to a close, either the physical domain or the cyber domain. And uh, we should probably expect to see if uh, the Russians change tactic a little bit. Uh, they, they seem to have been trying to adjust what they're doing on the ground, if you've been uh, following the ground war. So I would not be surprised if they are uh, both listening to this type of reporting, what the Ukrainians are saying, but also seeing it for themselves and seeing if they can uh, adjust course here and come up with some new, new methods of engaging on the cyber front. <laughs> All right. Well, that concludes this week's episode. I want to thank you all for tuning in and I will see you next week. I'm Calvin Bryant, and this has been Defending the Edge. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to like, subscribe, share with friends and coworkers, and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you were tuning in from. Defend Edge is your partner in cybersecurity, providing 24-7 cybersecurity monitoring and enhanced proactive threat hunting. We provide security management, advisory services, penetration testing, and more to help you defend the edge of your cyber domain. Find out more at www.defendedge.com. The Defending the Edge podcast is produced and edited by Calvin Bryant, reporting by the Defend Edge Cyber Threat Intelligence and SOC teams. Defending the Edge is a Defend Edge production. Copyright Defend Edge 2022.